I'm Sean Graham, and what's old as news this week is the film industry in Canada. For over a century now, Canadians have had a love affair with the American film industry, both as producers and as vociferous consumers of it. And yes, there is a domestic film industry, but it is not nearly as large as the American film industry's presence in this country. From coast to coast to coast, films are made here. Canadian crews are used. Certainly, we have a significant number of Canadian actors who have gone on to fame and fortune in the American film industry. And highlighting Canada's role both as a consumer and as a producer of American film, I think it's a very interesting angle to approach our overall relationship with the United States. We do have protectionist policies on various industries, including the film industry. When you think of something like the National Film Board, Canadian content regulations, but at the same time, we want to fully engage with our neighbors to the South culturally. There's a niche industry of people pointing out Canadian locations in American films that are standing in for American cities. And we have this appreciation for Canadian celebrities who have made it within the film industry in the United States. And every week, thousands and thousands of Canadians are enjoying new Hollywood releases, whether in theaters or in their homes. So as we look at the history of American film in Canada. There's so many different angles. And there are two new wonderful books doing just that from Michael Gates, entitled Hollywood in the Klondike, Dawson City's Great Film Find, and Mary Graham's A Stunning Backdrop, Alberta in the Movies, 1817 to 1860. And both these books explore the place of the American film industry in Canada. In Hollywood in the Klondike, Michael talks about an absolutely amazing find in Dawson City where there were films buried in the, in the city, old films that were shown in the local cinema and they found them as they were doing some excavating and what the process of excavating those films were sending them off. And it highlights the relationship between Dawson City and American filmmakers while also getting into ideas about the Klondike and the gold rush as represented both in film, but also as it relates to cultural consumption in the Klondike. And it's a really wonderful way to approach these issues, to understand what people in that time, in that place were consuming, while also thinking about how their experience was being represented on film. And then Mary's book explores how Alberta was used as a location for American films, in particular, Northwest Western films. So not necessarily the traditional Western that you might think of, of the old West of John Wayne, but new forms of Western film and how the landscape of Alberta was a prominent feature in those films and how local communities were central to the creation of those films, even if they weren't always treated with great respect. So I was very excited to sit down with both Mary and Michael to talk about their respective books and the themes that emerge from both of them. So I enjoyed this chat. I think you will as well. So let's get right into my discussion with Michael Gates and Mary Graham. All right. And Mary Graham and Michael Gates join me Very now. Mary, Michael, how are you today? 
Well, I'm very excited that the two of you are here to talk about film in <laughs> Canada, two different locations, but certainly some overlap in themes between the two books, which is why I'm so excited that you're both here. And just to kick us off, I, I want to get your general impressions about the film industry in Canada and, and the historical backdrop to that, because we hear so much today, like if you go see a movie, you can be like, oh, that's Vancouver. And if you live in Vancouver, you can spot the buildings or <laughs> Toronto or wherever it is. So there is a lot going on currently. Uh, but Mary, maybe we'll start with you. Or how do you assess the historical legacy of American filmmaking second, first in World Canada? War, Canada, and specifically Alberta, was known as the Great Northwest, the far country, God's country. It was, it was a mythical, romanticized place. And they uh, felt their landscapes were being depleted and they were looking for new landscapes. And so a whole genre of film, which I, I hadn't realized until I you know, started researching my book, was built around the romance of the Northwest, of the wilderness. And it, it was very prolific. There were a lot of movies made. A lot of them were first shot in California, but as they, you know, after the Second World War, they started... Uh, taking one or two cars and, and coming up here and filming. It, so it, it started in Alberta. It was an Alberta-specific genre. There were thousands thousands upon thousands of them made. And I, we'll never know how many they, they were. Um, the Yukon was actually, the, some of the movies that were shot in Alberta at the time, they would go to Alaska to take the ar Arctic scenes. But, uh, and there were a couple of them that were set in the Yukon for, for the story. But I haven't found... That I know of any any film companies that actually traveled to Yukon, but there could very well have been. Alberta started, you know, it was a promotional place for the CPR and uh, the Alberta government, the Canadian government. And so they promoted the heck out of it and they built the railway and they built the fancy hotels. So as film became monetized and, and it sort of churned itself towards being a massive industry, in the late 1910s, Canada missed the boat. It, it should have gotten in and back to film industry for national identity, for creative content, for individual expression. But they decided to continue in the same vein and, and keep it as a propaganda tool. And that is basically what defined filmmaking right up until 1960. And Michael, I'm sure you see a lot of the same themes in looking at the Klondike and filmmaking there. The Klondike uh, has been the inspiration for at least a couple of hundred movies. I know Jack London's movie or book, The Call of the Wild, I think it's been uh, rendered in film 13 times. And even Robert Service and some of his work has been uh, turned to film. In fact, uh, in 1926, they, they sent film crews to the Yukon to film some of the uh, scenery that was used in the uh, production of uh, the Trail of 98. But generally speaking, although the, the Klondike seems to inspire Hollywood to produce films about the gold rush, the way they render the gold rush is uh, really cliched and distorted and uh, sometimes almost embarrassing. And I, I, I'll use one example uh, because there's an Alberta connection here. Jimmy Stewart was in a movie called The Far Country, and uh, they, they use the Columbia ice fields as the, uh, the Chilkoot Trail, and they're constantly going up and down the ice field uh, throughout the movie. And it's portrayed uh, in the typical Western fashion with uh, you know, the, the lawlessness and the, 
the one man who stand up to the bad elements because there's no law and order there. And of course, none of that was the case at all, but it's a, an example of Hollywood pandering to what they think the public wants to see. Mary mentioned that we'll never know exactly how many movies were made there in Alberta. Uh, Michael, for you, you found a bunch of stuff in a very interesting way, uh, finding movies, which kind of speaks, I think, to the sense of it's impossible to know how many given the environmental conditions. So could you just tell that story of how you came across some of the films? Yes, well, uh, for starters, uh, none of the film that I'm going to talk about had anything to do with the Yukon. It was all newsreels and Hollywood content. Uh, And it was uh, 1978. And uh, they were uh, making the preparations to build a new recreation center. They demolished the old hockey rink. And uh, they sent someone over to do some exploratory digging to find out how bad the permafrost was. And they started uncovering all kinds of debris. And included in that debris were canisters holding reels of film. And uh, there, there were also just reels of film lying about. As the, uh, the backhoe penetrated the ground and pulled these things up, uh, the, uh, the city official who was overseeing the work told them to stop. They contacted us. And that was the beginning of what we refer to as the Dawson Film Find. And uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of reels of film were recovered. We actually found out the circumstances under which they, they were buried, uh, both through someone who actually was there when they were buried, uh, writing a letter and telling us about it. It was also in the newspapers. Um, the um, uh, the films that were, were coming out were... Um, you know, you'd think that after being buried in the ground for 50 years, they'd be in poor shape. But they were so tightly wound on the reels that uh, the the images had been preserved. There'd be, be a little bit of bleed along the sprocket margins, so you get this this funny fluttering along the, the edges. But uh, much of the footage survived, and uh, over 500 of those films uh, were uh, suitable for restoration. National Film, uh, National Archives, the National Sound Television and Film Archives in Ottawa, uh, became involved when Sam Kula expressed interest. In fact, he flew up in person to examine the site because he he found it rather interesting. It was a gamble for him, but it paid off, and it was big enough that uh, they they were kind of overwhelmed by the the challenges. They got the Library of Congress involved, and the American Hollywood footage uh, ended up in the Library of Congress and all the newsreels, which were uh, Canadian-based and had Canadian content in them, uh, are now in the National Archives in Ottawa. So that was those are the circumstances and uh, um, recovering them. And uh, we, we had to be careful. This stuff was really flammable. So we had to take all kinds of precautions to make sure they didn't burst into flame. And trying to get them to Ottawa was a big challenge. I remember uh, the difficulties. Uh, we, we were able to get uh, the material shipped to Whitehorse from Dawson City, a distance of about 330 miles, with a, a, a domestic backhaul with a, a local mover. But when they got to Whitehorse, uh, they, 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 they knew the story. They knew what it was. They knew it was nitrate-based film. And uh, when I went down to make arrangements to have it shipped to Ottawa, they refused. They said, we know what this is. We won't touch it. 
The airlines wouldn't touch it because it's hazardous goods. Greyhound wouldn't touch it. I, I feared that we would be forced to rent a truck and drive down with the material in person. But one of uh, one of our staff who'd been in the military suggested we, we try the Department of National Defense. And Sam Kula made arrangements for them, uh, with them. And they flew a Hercules transport up and they, they put the, the big crates that uh, housed these films into the, the Hercules and they flew them to Ottawa. They arrived on November 11, 1978. They had to improvise. They had to find a way to restore these films and nobody ever have to, had to deal with a situation like this before. And uh, they, they brought together the best minds that were available in Ottawa and it took them about 10 days, but uh, they very quickly found a solution to the, the challenge. Mary, obviously, you didn't have to go digging in permafrost to find some of the titles uh, that are included in in your work. Uh, but how many movies are we talking about that that you sat down and watched? Michael mentioned that about five hundred are found in the Dawson Film Find. What are you looking for when you're going to find some of these Alberta based or Alberta made? films like what kind of numbers well i found every every almost every movie i think there were two in my book there was one by reginald barker in 1923 that actually had just been gifted to the library of congress by russia the russian archives kept every kept a copy of every movie ever filmed in russia and the americans for some reason didn't so they were you know until recent days gifting 10 a year so the library of congress restored it and i asked i requested uh to the studio that I watch it and they said no. So I went to the Library of Congress and um, I wasn't allowed to take any recording information in with me or pens or papers. They, they were actually very supportive in uh, helping me with, with convince the studio. And then someone stood behind me as I watched it. So I saw probably six or seven at the Library of Congress. They've been absolutely fantastic. Probably saw six or seven at UCLA Film Archives. A lot of them I got online, Bronco Buster by Bud Boitker. Uh, he's a huge, huge, huge director. The Renon Cycle with uh, Randolph Scott, he's, he's revered. Bronco Buster was shot at the Calgary Stampede, but I couldn't confirm it in 1952 for, until I got the film. And I finally got it from Korea and watched it. It took about five, seven years. Particularly in the early days, a lot of the films were... Um, you can't really tell what a film is until you watch it. And so, for example, Under Suspicion in 1930 uh, was one of three films made by Fox Film to replicate the success of In Old Arizona. And uh, they had a singing Mountie, a gay Calabro, and uh, an Irish opera singer who comes to the Midwest. And so the Mounties were, you know, supposed to be singing in uh, Jasper on their horses. And it was a huge production. And when I actually watched the film, and this happened a lot in the 1920s. The director, it was A.F. Erickson, I think, he became obsessed with the landscape. So the singing Mounties got ditched, although um, the guys on the horses, but uh, the movie is all about the mountains. And we've been trying to identify who the guide is, but he has this mountain guide traveling over the mountains. And, and that, um, 
And that happened with Frank Borzaghi a number of times. He just became obsessed with the landscapes and they sort of overtook the story. I think that that gets a sense of, of sort of what that process is like. And since both of you have looked at films from this early moment of filmmaking, I'm curious to know if there's themes that emerge uh, within the films as you sit down and watch them. Like I, I think back to the films that I've seen of the 1920s, 1930s that include Canada at all. There's always going to be a Mountie. We'll talk about indigenous representation in a little bit uh, and, and sort of the colonial side of things. Frequently there are Dukabors or, or some other Eastern European uh, immigrants who are very nice to whoever the guests are, right? There's there's all sorts of, of those representations as well. So Mary, we'll start with you. Like, is there that type of theme that emerges over uh, and well, over again in these movies? Wars, the, the first independent movie in Alberta was made by Larry Matansky in 1960, and it was extremely successful. He was one of the Alberta film and photographic unit at the, who worked with the, the, the Monster 4 directors who came in 1953 and he really learned from them and it, it really bore the, the independent film industry. And it was about a, a goose that chases a pilot in the wilds. But the second movie was about dancing naked Dukabor woman in, in a house burning down. It didn't go over well. <laughs> so, he had, his first movie made 9 million. So the themes are, I mean, the Northwest gender, Northwest melodrama is, is a very specific genre. And it, when it was founded, Thomas Inch, the father of the Western, he had by some motion pictures and many, many, many of the young directors, Berzaghi, John Ford, Reginald Barker, any, all of them, all of the people who filmed in Alberta worked with Thomas Ince at Bison. Thomas Ince is the father of the Western. But the Western hadn't really been, you know, they, they, the genres were changing so much at the time and nothing was established. And they, they would call them by many different names. The Northwest genre was a specific genre. And it, it is similar to the Western, but it's, it's, it's not a Western. And it was very specific. And that's what they came here to film. So Man Against Nature, the, the early, early films, the, the Borzaghi films are just, the, the, the landscapes are just brutally desolate which shocked me when I saw them. And they were up on Victoria Glacier. They put actors and actors down the crevasses. They lost a camera down a crevasse. And they were crazy young and, and totally inspirational. And I fell in love with them all. They were just wild and super cool. The idea that civilized people were somehow more savage than, than the people of the wild and, and crueler. There were a lot of Mounties in the film. And it's interestingly enough, there were several in, in Alberta that didn't include Mounties. Everybody thinks that, in, specifically in Canada, and this problem's come up over and over in the century, is, is that it's documentary. It's not documentary. It, it's, it's a creative piece of work. So if they film the Canadian Rockies as the Swiss Alps, I find it absolutely exhilarating that they're doing that and they're replicating it. And it's really, really been interesting to see how they do it. And it's it's not... All that they're making a film, they're putting together a story, and they're using the elements they need to put it together. It's, it's interesting, right? Because you talk about some of these foundational moments, and if we take some of those foundational aspects, certainly, Michael, in the films that are found with respect to the gold rush, 
you might not have the same foundational themes, or maybe you do, but you certainly have individuals who are foundational in the industry who are appearing. So if you could talk about maybe some of the themes that, that emerge there, but also how those pieces are, or at least the individuals are, are very foundational to a lot well, of the they, stuff they that they we see today. They haven't filmed many Gold Rush films here in the Yukon. They're usually filmed somewhere else. And the people who um, star in them uh, and, and the script writers who, who write these, obviously, in many cases, haven't been to the Yukon. And uh, they overlook some of the obvious things. For example, uh, one that really stands out, and uh, I've seen it uh, repeatedly, it, uh, it doesn't get dark here in the Yukon in the summertime. And so when you have someone sneaking around uh, in the darkness to kill somebody or to do whatever, you know, it, uh, it does not represent what we are and who we are. I take a very historical sort of approach to this. I'm, you know, it's, it's fiction. It's fiction. It's fiction. It's not a documentary. As for people who uh, have featured in film, there were quite a few people who came to the Yukon during the gold rush. They were attracted to the gold rush, as were tens of thousands of others, by opportunity and uh, maybe a little bit of uh, excitement. The world had been uh, suffering from a very severe depression. And any opportunity to, even under the guise of, well, maybe I can make some money and, uh, you know, uh, reunite our family, deep down inside, they, they were just bored of the, the tedium of uh, recession and uh, embarked on this adventure. And amongst them were people who went on to be famous in Hollywood. So there's lots of fun around these portrayals of the Yukon. The Yukoners have a lot of fun watching them because they, they make fun of them and they, they pick out all the uh, discrepancies and the inaccuracies. Hollywood's really bad for portraying it the way Hollywood wants to portray it. So, uh, but the films that yeah. were uncovered uh -huh. in 1978, they, there wasn't a single frame in there portraying the Yukon. What it was, was a, uh, it, it's like a, a, a slice of time. And this is what people in Dawson City were viewing in the theater. And there was no other entertainment. They didn't have television. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have radio. So moving pictures were a big deal. And up until 1914, they, they actually had uh, three. Sometimes there was a fourth theater that uh, screened silent movies. So there were lots of films being shipped to Dawson. They were too expensive to ship them back. So they piled up here. And that is how they came to be buried in uh, what turned out to be an old swimming pool in a, a Gold Rush era recreational center. Mm -hmm. One thing that we haven't talked about yet, uh, but I'd like to get into, is the representation of Indigenous peoples on film, but also maybe how they helped these industries as they came to the North or were representing the North in any way. Certainly the traditional Western in the United States is, quote unquote, cowboys versus Indians and the cowboys are going to win. That's just the way it goes. And, you know, when you go back and look at some of the representation, certainly pick out basically mm -hmm. all the John Wayne movies, uh, you know, you don't have very accurate or, or positive representations of indigenous peoples, uh, nor 
when you hear some of the stories where they treated well behind the scenes either those who were on the sets anything like that so mayor if we start with you what was the relationship between filmmakers and indigenous peoples both on and off screen uh, and how does this help inform perhaps some of the bigger discussions surrounding well i did a film project with 10 to 15 nakota elders for more than a year and a half and uh, they came they they came to one of my book launches and they just came out to represent they ran the show and they're extremely proud of the book that was really, really important to me. Frank Barzaghi actually probably came to Alberta in 1919 when he made his first movie here to work with the Nakota. They had just been featured in a Burton Holmes, a uh, couple of Burton Holmes scenics where he'd been camping with them. They were perceived as, quote unquote, less hostile than American natives. And Frank Barzaghi shot another film here in 1922. And the Library of Congress restored it for me, and I took it out to the Morley Reserve and, and watched it with the Nakota. And actually, he rec recreated their traditional life. They weren't, quote-unquote, movie Indians. He, he had them in a scene in the wilderness where the RCMP is, or Mounties looking for the, the guy who got away. And uh, there's a little boy in the movie, Frank Powderface and his his son was in the Stony Film Project. My darling Charles Powderface, but um, little Frank Powderface was four, and uh, he is actually credited in the movie. And Borzaghi actually camped with the Nakota while he was making the movie, and possibly at Kootenai Plains, which is their unceded territory, and is actually uh, um, in dispute uh, with the in terms of land land that was given to them. They they still live there. They were told not to, but they still do. Frank Borzaghi loved Frank Powderface and he told he taught him to put his fingers to his ears and stick his tongue out and say hi mucky muck every time he saw a white man. So I kept finding pictures of Frank Powderface and I, I finally, you know, found out who he was. What we did in the film project was that we watched the Stony Nakoda well, the Nakoda, Stony was a derogatory term attached to them, but uh, for, indicating they cook with stones. They have a hundred years, a century of themselves in film and it was it was just devastating to watch it because we saw their culture change from the that Barzaghi film when they were weren't portrayed as as hostiles they we were portrayed as themselves and in their 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 own clothing their own teepees the teepees weren't uh, painted up or anything that traditionally they were white they were just painted up for tourism spectacles and we watched you know through the 50s the the sexualization of the women and this is the gonzo racism. And, you know, for them, for, for any Indigenous person, Little Big Man is the culmination. It is when he fights so hard in that film to, to say they are human beings, he is a human being. And that, that film is just, you know, it's, it's, it means everything to them. We had a, a mini film project at the BAMP Centre with 10 kids. And they were kind of like the elders were really concerned about what the kids were going to say when they saw 10 Nakota kids, when they saw the racism from some of the films we were in. I was very concerned about it. And when I screened it, you know, I would be pacing the night before. And the really gonzo racism scenes, they would just split themselves. They'd die laughing because it's so far away from what they are. But um, one of the kids, we were watching Little Big Men, and all of a sudden the kids just got very, very quiet. And we hadn't really known how to talk to them about racism and why their, their ancestors were in racist films or portrayed. And, and then one of the kids said, 
where was that film? And the elders just, they were very strategic. They didn't, they don't, you know, I can't speak for them, but they don't really care what we think of them. We, we have, we have done so many horrible things to them. I, I don't, we've called them so many names. They don't care about our words. We lie. We've murdered them. We've, we've murdered their children. We've brutalized their children. You know, what do you do when you're trying to kill a race, kill the children? The sexualization of the women is, is very upsetting to them in film. Uh, and it's, probably largely responsible for what is going on with their women and has gone on with the murdered and missing women and the reason that they're considered disposable. And Michael, for you, when you look at the way the gold rush is represented, the Klondike is represented, uh, are you seeing similar themes to what Mary's talking about in certain, in, in some places there's certainly racist depictions, but also perhaps examples of, of empowerment as well. Like, like what, what are you seeing when you look at your films? Well, first of all, we we don't have the abundance of films that were actually made here to compare with right. what uh, what Mary has been describing, and so it was what was being shown in the theaters. And I I recall one, Douglas Fairbanks and the Half Breed, and I think it uh, it's a sympathetic portrayal, but of course they have a white man portraying the Indian, and uh, that was a common theme that uh, recurred in a lot of uh, Hollywood films. I won't say too much more. I, I will say that, uh, that there was a, a three-part miniseries Ridley Scott produced for television called Klondike. And it was just uh, screened a few years ago. And the, the portrayal of uh, Indigenous people in that was the typical Hollywood cliche kind of portrayal, you know, them and us, you know, and... Uh, you're expecting the uh, the stampeders to uh, you know certain not circle the wagons but maybe circle their canoes and fight off these these bad Indians and uh, uh, and then uh, they go to the other extreme and uh, you have the the Mounties gunning down these uh, these poor Indian people and you know it none of those things happened historically there were plenty of bad things that came out of colonialism here residential schools uh, in particular is worthy of note but those things don't get portrayed in these movies do they it's uh, you know circling the wagons and uh, defending yourselves from the hostile indians and uh, there are a lot of other clichés that uh, don't don't reflect the reality so those are westerns in the northwest melodrama they were a little different in their portrayal um sometimes you know like Great Barrier is a conglomerate of Canadian history and uh, British filmmaking in an American Western. It's a very strange movie, but it worked. They were either sort of slightly daft and spiritual sidekicks, and and specifically in the the early, you know, the 1920 movies, the the Indigenous people. There was always a lot of the a lot of the characters were women, and they were rebels, and they always had a a mysterious sidekick, an indigenous sidekick, and then they'd sit out in the wilds and fume. Or they were not intelligent and no cultural bearing, no agency. The the idea of hostiles is an American concept. It's cowboys and Indian, and that was the, the settlement of the American West. So obviously there's there's a lot to unpack with both of these books and the connection between filmmaking and Canada both as as viewers of this content right we we do consume a majority of american content in this country but also as producers and, and uh, the connection between the the landscape production representations of canada 
a lot in both these books. So for both of you, if you could just give me almost like your elevator pitch of sorts of why is it important for us to understand the historical roots uh, that both of you are exploring in your books of the connection between American filmmaking and Canada and these representations? Like, why, why does that matter? I, I think the, uh, the gold rush was a charismatic historical event that inspired great writing. And it still inspires people today, I might add. It inspired Hollywood, for sure. Hollywood was inspired to use the gold rush as a setting for many of these films. But they, they just can't capture the Northness. Uh, many of them turn into uh, Westerns move north. The same kind of themes of conflict and confrontation. You know, the, uh, the during the gold rush, uh, the year 1898, 1899, there wasn't a single murder of the type where there was a gunfight in the street. The Mounties uh, patrolled and uh, maintained law and order, um, as Pierre Burton said, and I, I think it's probably accurate. The, uh, the, the worst crime that could be committed was breaking the, uh, the Sabbath. They shut everything down on Sunday. And uh, chopping wood on Sunday would be a heinous crime. So that, that isn't something that Hollywood can get grasp. There, there's nothing spectacular about that. So they, they fall back to all the, the traditional things of guns and violence and, uh, and cliches, many of which are inspired by the Westerns. And uh, Pierre Burton made a couple of good points. He, they, they syndicated uh, one of his books, Klondike, uh, The Last Great Gold Rush, turned it into a television series. And uh, he satirized his experience working with them as a consultant, because every time he, he pointed out the historical facts, they had reasons why they couldn't portray it that way. It was too expensive. They couldn't film it in the north, so you have pine trees instead of uh, spruce forests. He said that they wore beards. Well, we can't have that. People would think uh, it was a comedy. They smoked pipes and cigars, but uh, in the series, it had to be cigarettes because one of the uh, sponsors was a cigarette company. So there are so many things that interfere with an accurate portrayal from a historical perspective, which is what I, I try to explore. Hollywood uh, gets a very low grade, C minus. What I discovered in this book was the magnitude of Alberta in relation to Hollywood film history and, and um, how important it is. The, the, the directors, you know, I was, I was with a, a film archivist and we were going over the list of movies and we were both shocked at, at, at when you put the list together, when I put the list together, it was shocking at the magnitude of the directors. And a lot of them came in, er, in their early careers. A lot of them, you know, they're, they're, I don't think there's one. Everybody thought that uh, the Westerns or the movies filmed in Alberta were B-Westerns. So they weren't. And um, that, that is something that I kept uncovering and uncovering. And it just got more and more interesting. And But also that the Nakoda were very, very strategic. And, and, and the Samson Cree, I worked with them a bit. They... Uh, they were in a Thomas Ince Western 1923, and they were they were told to stay on the reserve and not pretend to be Douglas Fairbanks, and they snuck off the reserve. That was a that was a boondoggle, and filmed the movie. And the 
the importance of indigenous peoples to the film industry, how strategic they were, how creative they were. Indigenous peoples weren't credited. They weren't recognized for the work they did. You know, they were extremely important and influential to the film industry. I mean, they're still filming Morley, The Revenant, uh, Prey. They, they were still filming at Morley 100 years later, and they're still working with them. There's certainly like a, a lot in both of these books and certain valuable information. We encourage everybody to go check them out. So Mary Graham, A Stunning Backdrop, Alberta in the Movies, 1917 to 1960. Michael Gates, Hollywood in the Klondike, Dawson City's great film, Find. We will link to both of those books in the show notes below. And if you head over to Active History, look at the post associated with this episode. You can find links to that and all the other great stuff that Mary and Michael have going on. So this was great. I really enjoyed it. Uh, Mary Graham, Michael Gates, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks a lot, Sean. So there you have it. My chat with Michael Gates and Mary Graham. And I, of course, thank them for their time. And with that, we'll get to today's historical headline of the week, which comes from the Campbell River Mirror, entitled North Island Students Reeling in Film Training. And this article profiles the Vancouver Island North Film Commission and their collaboration with North Island College to create a practical training program for students on the north part of Vancouver Island, they have studios in Langley. And the course actually just finished up a few weeks ago, and it teaches students things like lighting, grip, set construction, set dresser, and location production, and all of the things that are necessary to a film production. And it puts these students in a position to work in the field. And it highlights, again, the importance economically of the film industry in Canada. And some of these students certainly will go and work exclusively within the Canadian domestic film industry. But you would expect some of them to go on and work with American films as well as they come up to Canada to film, particularly in that part of the country. So you can continue to see that there is this connection, this very deep connection between Canada, the United States, and our respective film industries. They are greatly integrated. And this program is just another example of the investments that are being made to maintain those relationships, to maintain that tradition, and that the idea of Canada being a set for American films and films in general is still strong. And there's an expectation that these students will be able to make a long and prosperous career for themselves through these types of programs. So that love affair with film that both Michael and Mary were talking about still alive and well with North Island students reeling in film training from the Campbell River Mirror, today's historical headline of the week. And with that, I will say thank you very much for listening, everybody. If you have not yet, please do subscribe wherever you get the podcast, likes, rates, comments, all that good stuff helps other people find the show, keeps us growing. Of course, head on over to activehistory.ca. Past episodes are there, plus all the written material that is available through the site. And if you want to let me know what you want to hear on the show, what's oldest news at gmail.com. So with that, thanks so much for listening, everybody. We'll be back with you again next week for more What's Old is News.